for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Well, we do hope and pray that today is a blessing and an encouragement for your life. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and open with me to the book of Titus. Titus will be in chapter 1. I don't typically sit down uh, on Sunday mornings when I'm preaching, but I, uh, I did last week, and I'm going to this week as I finish last week's sermon um, in this sermon. So uh, it, it's mostly just because of the topic and the sermons being more teaching-centric than preaching-centric. And um, so I, I just kind of want to convey that in posture uh, as well um, as content and otherwise. So we're, we're looking in the book of Titus, and uh, in Titus, Paul is uh, writing to this young man who is leading the church on the Isle of Crete, and he has given him this mandate to appoint elders in every town on this island. And so what we find in the first nine verses are these uh, qualifications, if you will, really verses 5 through 9, these qualifications for who it is that's to lead the church. And so I want to read for us our, our uh, passage for today. It's not a long passage. We'll, uh, we'll begin in verse 5 and read through verse 9 of Titus 1. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll stop there for today. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. And so here's kind of the big idea that we're aiming for last week and this week as well, is that God calls leaders to the church that are qualified by character and competent for the work. And, and last week we began by looking at four principles that guide the church to understand how God calls elders to lead His church. And so I just want to review the two principles that we covered last week, and then we'll move right on into what we're going to spend the bulk of our time in today. The first principle, though, is important for us because it, it establishes the value for the church of godly leadership. And the first principle is simply this, that appointing elders is the first priority of order in the church. If there isn't a church that is established by covenant membership, which is determined through sound doctrinal teaching and 
people embracing by faith, following Christ, and embracing this covenant of people that are holding to that doctrine, if there is no covenant membership like that, then there is no need for leadership. And until the covenant membership has been established, leadership, leadership, excuse me, leadership has no value. I have no idea why my mouth does that sometimes. Other than I'm three sentences ahead in my mind where I'm talking right now. That's the only explanation that I can give. And so Paul left Titus in Crete and he says, I want to authorize you to, to use my apostolic authority in order to appoint elders in every church because appointing elders for the church sets God's love on his people and that is the way God distinguishes his people in the world he sets his love on them and he does that by giving them an under shepherd and so we said this about this first principle that Christians are shepherded by Jesus through under shepherds in the world so that was the first principle the second guiding principle that we looked at last week was that qualification for eldership begins with personal, godly character. Qualification for eldership begins with a personal, godly character. And so trust in church leaders demands this uh, good soil of character in order for the church's trust to grow deep roots and to hold firm. And we talked about how the personal character of a man reveals the true man himself. And and we looked at three basic areas of life to discern this personal character. First of all, the overarching qualification of above reproach, which is kind of that general overarching, which we'll actually begin with again today. Secondly, sexual purity and fidelity. He must be a one-woman man, and so he must be sexually pure, and and, uh, if married, he should remain faithful to his wife, and he must be a faithful follower. And so these these qualities identify the deepest levels in a man's life, because these are the people who see and relate to him in the deepest, most intimate way in life. And and we didn't want to intend uh, in any way to infer that this means a man must be perfect, but rather to provide a baseline character of a man that walks by faith and, and is becoming more like Jesus. And so biblical qualification for eldership, we said, begins with godly personal character. Now the third principle I introduced to you last week, but I kind of took a sidebar for a moment because I want to explain it. And, and so let me state the principle for you again And then we'll dive in from there. The third principle that should guide the church in establishing biblical leadership is that qualification measures the man's character in order to ensure competency for the work. And I spent the bulk of our time at the end of this or after this stating this principle, talking about the difference between what it means to be capable to do a work and competent for a work. And in my own conviction and studying the word, I believe this is a critical juncture that so many miss today. They look at a person and go, they're capable, but they don't look into a person to determine and discern whether they're competent or not. And so I explain the difference between these, uh, these two, capability and competency. And let me just let me give one brief uh, comparison again today before we move on. Capability simply says this, 
a man looks at the job and says, I can do that, but without consideration for the full responsibility of what that entails. It's armchair eldering is what it is, right? Uh, it's like we armchair quarterback, you know, with football season starting over. Oh man, did he not see the guy? No, I don't think he did see the guy open in the flat because he had 600 pounds bearing down upon him from the, the backside and he was a little distracted at the moment, right? So, I mean, when we start armchair quarterbacking like that or armchair eldering, we go, I could do that. I, I could see how that needs to be done. But you don't give the full weight of responsibility to the position. That's what capability says. Competency says this. Competency doesn't look at personal capability, but rather applying personal capability. Competency says, God is leading me. Therefore, I'll be responsible to make sure that it gets done in the way it needs to be done, in the time it needs to be done, and for the purpose for which it needs to get done. And all of those have to stay together. It's not pick or choose which one you want to. You see, elders are qualified by character in order to determine competency for the work. Because the work of an elder is not just an individual person's work. It's not even the cumulative effort of a group, but rather it's God's work. That's why he says you're overseers, you're God's stewards of the church. And so elders oversee the church for God. And Hebrews tells us they will give an account to God, not only for the church, but for the way that they oversaw the work of the church. And so in this third principle, we see that elders are qualified by character to ensure that they are competent to lead God's work. And we finished last week by looking at a comparison between these two. And and, and we saw that eldership demands... That a man be qualified as competent in character in order to lead Jesus' mission. You see, that competency affords to a man a spiritual power and an authority. Eldership demands that a man rely on God's strength to do the work, not to rely on his own. And when a man draws strength, he will always draw strength. He will always draw strength from that which is shaping his character to make him strong. That's what we've seen all too often and frequently over the last few weeks. Strength to lead with competence as an elder comes from a man's character that is shaped by Jesus. I'm going to talk about this a little more a little later in the sermon. But a man will always run to that which is most shaping his character when the pressure mounts. And we'll see that. As Paul continues, he moves from a man's personal to his public life. And so he talks about uh, a man's character in terms of that overarching qualification, uh, in terms of the intimacy and and the the, uh, health of his marriage and his sexual purity as a one-woman man, and also his leadership and and skills in shepherding or pastoring as as a, a father. And so he moves from this, shall we say, most personal life now to what I would call a personal public life as uh, 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 his character gets displayed 
publicly. And he begins again with the same initial qualification that's kind of an overarching one of he must be a man above reproach. It means the same thing here that it did in the previous verse. But here he immediately goes to a list of negative traits or vices and, and, and he says that a man must not be characterized by these things. And so I want us to take just a moment to walk through these and look at the things that Paul says a man must not be characterized by these things. When you see these things in a man's life, you know that he's drawing from a source of personal strength that's other than Jesus. And the first one he says is this, he must not be arrogant must not be arrogant. A man who is arrogant is marked as, is marked as a man who is self-willed. In other words, he's drawing strength for his life from the will of his self. And that self-will is infecting his opinion, not only of himself, but infecting that opinion of himself so deeply and so often subtly that all of life centers on Self. If self is the center of life, that means it's the most valued part of life. Therefore, it should be the most protected and honored aspect of life. In other words, he's primarily concerned about his own interest. And this is often displayed by putting self forth, or, or it, it can just as, uh, be as adequately displayed by stubbornly refusing to allow any others or any honor towards others in the midst of that. Peter uses this term in 2 Peter to speak of people who despise government authority as well. So it's not just individuals, it's towards institutions or organizations as well. I would argue this is one of the greatest absences of masculinity today displayed through bare arrogance. I was uh, sitting in an interview with a man one time who was a father. And because of the situation that had arisen, someone asked him, well, this is as much a legal matter as it is a moral matter or a family matter. Do you not feel as though you are responsible to the government or to the law? And here's a man who claimed to be a Christian. Here's his response. I answer to no man and no human authority but God. And his validation for that statement was that God had put him in charge of himself and his family. I didn't say anything. Number one, I wasn't leading the interview. I was only asked to be a witness to it, so I didn't have to say anything. Otherwise, I would have laughed in his face. But I thought the very God that you claim to be given authority by is the God whose place you're trying to take. And today, we, we don't want authority over us. We, we're raising young men to disregard authority, not to regard it. And we're raising our children not to look at other adults and not to look at people in positions that do hold authority, whether it is from their personhood or, or given by somebody, and, and, and to just completely dishonor them because we don't regard their authority. And usually you can see this in the child and know that it's been taught from mom or dad in some way. And so this, 
This is a quality, a characteristic that is so important for us today because arrogance will not acknowledge authority, but rather will disregard it. And scripturally, that's sinful. For the man that's called to lead God's people cannot be marked by arrogance or self-will or, shall I say, self-appointed honor or authority. The second qualification that he says is a man must not be quick-tempered. Quick-tempered marks a man who is ruled by infectious anger. And a man who's not learned to control his anger is a man that is ruled by pride. So you see, very much these are qualifications or character qualities, rather, that are interlinked and interrelated in the way that a man lives. The word for quick-tempered denotes a man that is quickly moved to act decisively without any consideration of facts of a, of a situation or even any consideration of the needs or desires of another person. He just acts quickly and decisively to remove any inconvenience or discomfort in and of himself so that he can be done with it and move on. You see the self-will being displayed through the quick temper here. You see, every man must learn to deal with anger in maturing because every man must learn to kill pride in his heart and in his life. I think in many ways, we're all a little prone to quick-temperedness. Why? Because we're all fighting pride. Because we're all fighting dethroning self so another Lord can rule. And so often we hand the authority of the throne that rules self to some addiction or something else that Paul will get to here in a moment instead of giving it to the only one that's really worthy or able to handle and hold that honor. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, not only must a man not be arrogant, not be quick-tempered, but a man must not be a drunkard. In other words, this word is a man that's not controlled by a substance. He must not be addicted to or controlled by wine or by strong drink. And, and listen, here's what I, I need to say to us today because here's what Paul, I believe, the essence of what he is saying, but also the explicitness of what he is saying. You don't have to get slobbering, staggering, stone-faced drunk to be a drunkard. That, that's how we qualify it so often today. The Otis of Mayberry is what we think of when we think drunkard, right? And I can only say that because it regularly replays on repeats. But we think, well, at least Otis is a moral guy, right? He comes into the jail and, and puts himself in jail every Saturday night when he gets drunk. So he's a drunkard, but he's a moral one, right? Doesn't want to be a, 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 a harm or a threat to the local town. So they just let him have the keys to sleep it off, right? But see, what Paul is saying here is he's not saying, well, let's draw a line so we can see how close to the edge that we are living, but rather... That this word has in view more than just the state of stone-faced drunkenness. This word has in view the abuse or the incessant use of alcohol. And I would expand this, not just to include alcohol, though I do think that was the primary uh, uh, 
thing that, or substance that Paul had in view here. I think it can be any substance in our world filled with the myriad of drugs that we've managed to conjure up. And substances that are good, many of them in and of themselves, but we've managed to use them in bad and harmful ways. This word has in view anyone who regularly partakes as a means of managing or coping with life. I've heard it said that Jack, Jim, and Jose are bad accountability partners. Right? Why is that? Because you're turning to something to manage or to cope with life. And it's allowing you to to avoid that which you need to be addressing. And so as Paul clearly has alcohol in view here, as a matter of principle, this is much more broadly applied beyond alcohol to any substance that exercises life-altering control over a person no matter how subtle. Now, there are many things that people turn to to cope with life sexual addictions and things of that nature. We've already dealt with that in the one-woman man qualifier, but here he's specifically addressing substance, substances and the substance of alcohol. Proverbs 20 gives a strong warning when it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And I hear, uh, I hear people say, I'm not addicted. And I hear alcoholics say, that's the first uh, uh, confession that you have to get over. It's the tallest wall that the alcoholic has to climb is the one to stop saying, I'm not addicted. I can quit at any time. The point here is this, friends. Really, the point is not alcohol. The point is our addiction and our propensity to addiction and coping and managing life with altering substances so that we can just not have to deal with it. And alcohol or any other substance may not dominate you every time you partake. You may not be the town Otis. But if it always must accompany you, that is sufficient to meet the standard of sinful vice. If it's just something you can't live without. If it's just something that you can't do without. That's problematic in view of what Paul is talking about here. The next one he says, a man must not be violent. Violent is identifying a man who quickly moves to physical attack, but may also include one who is simply bullish in his tactic. It's interesting that uh, so much of our society defaults to one extreme or the other. In terms of understanding masculinity, we either run to the effeminate, which basically removes masculinity, or we run to the machoism, which basically runs masculinity into the red line to overheat. And that's what Paul's talking about here. It's a man who is prone to use bullyish tactics. Why? Because he's just serving himself. He's arrogant and he's quickly tempered to protect his own arrogance and his own self-will. And he has to inflict violence in order to regard those things. He's cruel and he's brutal in his response mechanism. 
And he reveals an over-dependence in his own strength to disregard the well-being of others and to dominate them by sheer power or intimidation. Do you know why bullying is a big issue in our schools today? Because it's the way Washington, D.C. gets run. We're not going to solve bullying in the lives of our children until we stop putting up with it in the lives of our leaders. And I hope I'm not bullying you with this point. But the truth of the matter is, power and intimidation rules this world. Because Satan is the author of fear and intimidation that coerces, that manipulates, and that tries to subvert your good for destruction. And this man that leads the church cannot be given to that. Finally, there is another fateful temptation he must not be given to, and that is greedy for gain. Greedy for gain demonstrates a man consumed by money, by worldly possessions, or by anything and all things that it provides. You see, consumed by may include owning or acquiring many things, but more often it just simply includes the strong longing for those things. It's not so much about what they have or what they're getting, it's just about the inclination of their heart for those things. And that's what Paul is striking out here. Their heart desires increasingly more of what this world can offer. I remember hearing um, um, a talk one time about uh, millionaires because so often we are prone to believe, man, if you just had more money, you would be okay. You know, so many problems would be gone, right? And, and the person who was speaking at this time said, do you know what most consumes the heart of that millionaire who is earning and striving, not, not just because they have the money, I'm not saying that, but because they're after the money. Do you know what consumes their heart? And he paused for a moment and he said, one more dollar. Just one more dollar is what he's after. That's what Paul is aiming at here. He's greedy for gain. And that greed grows with every acquisition. It cannot be satisfied by anything. And, and that person believes that contentment only comes through more and more and more. And he's okay with dishonest gain. It's acceptable because it's an acceptable means that accomplishes the end that he is after. But also shame also accompanies this gain. Think about some of the most high profile people in our world today. They are celebrated not just for their wealth, but their what? Pursuit of wealth. And even when it is publicly recognized that the way they pursue that wealth and the way they acquire it is what? Is shameful. Is shameful. Maybe they skirted the legality of it, but they didn't skirt the morality of it. And yet we herald them and we elevate them as honorable, as desirable, as model-able. I don't know. Let me give you two illustrations. Because this is not about people who have money just wanting more. This is about people. 
This is about what money does to our heart and stuff and the things that it provides. We were in D.C. back in May, Washington, D.C. We took the, the necessary family vacation to go see all the filth that lives there. If you can't tell, I have a problem with politics. I'm just confessing that to you. Not really with politics in general, just mostly with politicians. Not all politicians, just the ones I don't like. And not because I don't like them, but because they're genuinely just bad people. Now I'm just showing some of my own heart here, right? I hope you understand I'm saying these things lightly. But seriously. Okay. Wow, I'm confused right now. So we're in D.C., and we, we got up and visited a church that morning and then walked over to a strip that's got a bunch of restaurants. And, man, I mean, there's just people moving. And the, the pace of life there is so incredibly fast. You can just feel it. And for me, all I want to do is get out, get out, get out, you know, find some trees and a wilderness to hide in. And it's just so fast. And we walk into this restaurant, which can't fit 10 people in it. And we're, we're eating burritos there. It's a Mexican restaurant. And so... Uh, three people get up, and the four of us run to their chairs, you know, because there's no other place to sit. We get our order, and we're eating, and this lady who is visibly homeless, there's a large homeless population in D.C., and it's fairly easy to identify them visually, and I don't mean any derogatory inference about that, but just the fact that you go there, you'll see this. And she comes in and she begins to speak very loudly and very crudely to the people behind the counter. I want some food. I want to give me some food, she said. And I mean, she's just being very adamant and demanding. They give her uh, a drink and I think they actually gave her some kind of food. And she fixes all of her sauces and she walks back outside and she's aggravated and said another few lines with colorful language included. And, you know, I was like, hey, when in D.C., you know, that's what you're going to get. So we walk out, and unbeknownst to me, uh, my wife and my son had gone on out, and I was following my daughter out because I stayed within two feet of her the whole time we were there. On cue, right? I mean, I was quickly being tempered at that time. <clears throat> and we walk out, and she walks up to the lady who has her back turned to her, and she says, ma'am, would you like these crackers? And I'm, I'm staying back, and she's already asked a couple of questions. I knew her interest had been piqued. And the lady turned around with very explicit, colorful, derogatory term and said, no, I don't want your food. You see, the point wasn't that the lady was hungry enough to want food. But that in that time, she was self-consumed enough to want what she wanted. And not just what she needed. And that was a life lesson that I smiled at because I wasn't surprised by how the exchange went. Quickly after that comment, uh, we moved on very quickly. But there's also um, in our world not only those who have nothing seemingly and won't be satisfied with something that would genuinely meet their needs if it doesn't satisfy their will. But we also see high-profile leaders in our nation who speak of being broke while have legally reported the millions and millions of personal worth of their life. So you see, greed for gain, it darkens and shames both ends 
of the socioeconomic spectrum. Because it's an issue of the heart. It's an issue of character. And this is not only an issue, these are not only issues for only a certain few in the church, but as I've said and will repeat, these are baseline issues of character for any Christian who claims the name of Christ. Greed is not reserved only to a specific kind of person, a specific certain status, or a class of people. It may infect anyone. It may infect any status or any class. You see, greed displays at varying levels of intensity or severity an inclination of the heart to depend upon money and stuff and all it can provide in this world. You see, these actions and attitudes, which attitudes are really nothing more than actions of the heart, right? They expose character. And sin is exceptional at covering its true presence and its true motives, even to deceiving the one in which it is housing. But character that is built on anything other than Christ cannot sustain the pressure from the responsibility of shepherding. That's Paul's point here. And so assessing character demands applied pressure to reveal what is forming the inner man. It doesn't mean that we come and, okay, we're going to apply some pressure. It's not boot camp, right? It's life because life applies pressure. And when pressure gets applied, you watch for what that character reveals about that person. Some sinful vices pour out of a man while others are run to by the man when he is pressured. Friends, perfection is never anticipated. We're not talking about get perfect so you can become something. But where a man turns for refuge in times of weakness, always reveal his first hope and where it rests for ultimate hope and strength. And that's the point that Paul is making here. I I heard just this last week, well, last weekend... My family and I uh, drove to South Arkansas to see my parents for the weekend. It was a quick trip, and so my mom tries to take us to every location in El Dorado and introduce us to everybody uh, all at once. And my kids are like, do we have to do this everywhere we go? And I, yes, we do. 46 years. I've done this now. Get used to it. It's just going to happen. And talk incessantly about it, you know. So we go to a restaurant. Twice we're confronted by the same conversation. El is not a big town. About 20,000 people Overall, we're sitting in a restaurant and very loudly and, and boisterously, the conversation at the next table is the Ashley Madison scandal that has taken place. And rumor mill has it that there are people in El Dorado who were found on that website. Imagine that. And so these people are flamboyantly talking about who do you think it is? You know, and, and offering and offering their own, um, shall we say, uh, ideas about the kinds of people that it probably is. And so I didn't think much about it. I, I kind of, Kristen and I kind of scoffed at it, but not scoffed at the situation, but that we were overhearing it. And then this last week, I was talking to a pastor who began to relate to me a pastor who had confessed his own indiscretions, and his own sin by signing up for the Ashley Madison website. And it was a worship pastor who had not been a worship pastor but a couple of years. But before that, 
he was on the road and had found a fair measure of success in contemporary Christian music. Do they call it that anymore? I don't think they do, but you know where I'm tracking with this. You see, the real test of your character will not be in your failures. It will come in your successes and who you most give glory to. You'll see them in your failures for sure. But they will be fully measured in your success. And so when the scandal broke, he heard about it. He immediately went to his pastor and he told his pastor, hey, you need to hear this from me before you hear it from anybody else. He says, my name is on that list. He'd already gone and checked and he said, let me tell you why. He said, we were on the road many, many days of the year. He said, we were finding a good measure of success in what we were doing, and my marriage was tanked back home. But I was never home, so we were still married. And he said, because of that, I came across a guy. I was expressing my frustrations to him, and he told me about this website where you could do this. He said, I got on, I logged in or created a profile, and I spent about 15 or 20 minutes looking through different profiles. And he said, I came under such conviction, I physically got ill and sick. And he said, I logged out and I just shut my computer and walked away. He said, that was the only time I ever logged in. A month later, I went back, or excuse me, a week later, I went back on and I paid the fee to have them remove my name and to delete my profile. Which, if you know the story, some of the scandal and some of the people suing them is because... They didn't get their profile and their information deleted. And that's how many have gotten caught. And so he said, I just want you to know, about a month after that happened, I went home, I confessed to my wife, I quit the road, got off the road and came home. I went to a three-month rehab uh, for myself. And then following that, uh, my wife and I spent uh, three to four months in marriage counseling. And he said, that was about a year and a half before I came on staff at this church. And he said, I'm not trying to hide anything. I just want you to know exactly what happened. And whatever you determine needs to happen with me, that's what we'll do. So the pastor took it to the personnel team. And the personnel team discussed it. And and he said, well, I, I think this is something the church needs to know. We don't need to just cover it up. And so he took it to the church. And he told the church just basically what I told you. And he said, it became a moment in the church where the church was shocked. But because of the gospel, they didn't have to react out of their own understanding. And they surrounded him, and they prayed for him, and for his marriage, and they loved him. You see, the gospel gives us this power to deal with broken character. It gives us the, the, the strength and the authority we need, not just to make us, but friends, to remake us. And that's what Paul is getting at in the measure of character. You see, uh, identifying and assessing a man's character for eldership is, is not just about what is not, but it's about what is. And, and measuring character always means identifying what is forming a man by assessing what is controlling that man. That's what's so important. And rather, being, and rather than being controlled by worldly vices, godly character reveals that Christ rules as Lord in life of all. Too often in the church, we, we want to enthrone a leader so that we can act like we worship him. And then when he's not perfect, we act shocked that his character was not completely perfect. 
But, but, but church leaders are not perfect people. They are people that are being forged and formed by the image of Christ within them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so rather being controlled by worldly vices, godly character reveals that Christ rules as Lord in their life. Here's what Paul says. Not only he must not be, but he must be, first of all, hospitable. Hospitable. Hospitable literally means to be a lover of a stranger. It extends relational credibility before equity in that relationship is earned. You see, pride and arrogance must size up another man or another person before it can know how it's going to relate to it, right? Like if he's badder and bigger than I am, I better be cool, right? If he's not, it doesn't really matter how I act, I can take him. But in humility, the benefit of the doubt is extended without earning or without deserving. It doesn't mean that a man is naive to threats that are potential. But rather, hospitality means standing ready to love, especially strangers, for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Christ Jesus. Not only must he be hospitable, but he must be a lover of good a true lover and holding uh, with a deep sense of joy and value that which is good in this world. You see, good in the world is an expression of God's nature, Psalms tells us. It's a gift of God's pleasure to us. It's an expression of godly character and it's a command for God's people. And, and, and when we value good, we know that God is working for our own good, regardless of whether we can see good in the situation or the circumstance. And we also know that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of light who gives to us good gifts. And so an overseer's love for people is always correlated with a love for what God wants to be for those people and in those people. And we believe that God desires good for all people. That's what it means to be a lover of good. To be self-controlled. A man keeps wise control over his personal passions and his personal desires. He acts with prudence in situations. Not making light of what is serious. Not allowing unrighteousness to be the joke. And not acting and speaking with regards for godliness. Rather than just acting out of personal comfort. You see, a self-controlled man lives ready for every situation and setting in order to display godliness both in his word and in his deed. That's what it means to be self-controlled. And then he says a man must be upright. He must live obedient to God's commands. He lives a godly life in the way that he lives. He's characterized by righteousness and strong morality and, and, and a good of justice as well. You see, the gospel does so much more than make us moral, but it never makes us something less than moral. Never. And men who model morality and godliness in life reveal a heart full of deep love for God's righteousness in what is shaping and forming them. He must be holy. It means that he is devout in his relationship with and is pleasing towards God. He should be marked as a man that walks with and communes with God simply by the way he lives. For the man that spends time with Jesus holds a marked distinction of gospel boldness in his life. That's what we see in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, what? 
uneducated common men. What are those two labels? They're two labels that the world puts on someone to elevate how they're able to value them in this world. And so these were men that the world didn't value. And and they weren't sure why they held such an authority. But they were astonished because they recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. They had a boldness. Disciplined, it says, he must be. Doing what you know you ought to and need to do regardless of whether you want to. I hate that definition. Because it always applies to me. You know what I'm saying? It always applies to each of us. The emphasis here is controlling sensual desires and the strongest of our human emotions and desires. An elder can't be controlled by anything more than Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, sinful vices focus on actions that reveal character. Godliness focuses on qualities. A man may not always produce right actions. Hear me in that? Because we're not perfect. But godly character will produce the fruit of increasing godliness in the life. And so right actions don't always immediately equal godly character. Do you know that? Right actions don't always immediately equal godly character. Sometimes we're too satisfied by actions alone. We are enthralled with persona in this world. There are many pastors who make it today just because they have a phenomenal magnetic personality and persona in the church. And they make it crazily well. We're too often enthralled by this. And and too often we think that a great leader equals a superhero image that always performs the right action. Let me throw this out there. Take, for instance, the movie Avengers. It creates a stark contrast for our consideration. Let me just throw some of these favorites up there. And boy, if this is your favorite movie of all times, I'm about to tread some bad water here with you. Who's Captain America? Captain America, I love him. I like the Avengers, just so you know. The movies, anyway. Captain America, he satisfies our nostalgia as Mr. Morality, preserved from a bygone era that we can kind of draw from, right? I mean, he's the dude that was preserved from an era that is near extinct now, but he's here for us. What about Iron Man? Uh Uh-oh. What about Iron Man? We accept him as a greedy drunkard and sexually promiscuous jerk because we don't think we can afford to do without him. Right? So we put up with his indiscretions. What about Thor? He's consumed with arrogance and everyone knows it. But anyone with those looks, those locks, and that body shouldn't be disregarded. It's a painful laugh, isn't it? What about Hulk? I mean, we all know he's just a disaster waiting to happen, right? He can't control himself. And so so this is so often the concept of masculinity in our day that, that he's either got to be a man that remains passively apathetic or he's going to become a raging destruction of anger. Is that not true? I don't want anything to do with it. I can't deal with it because if I do, I'm going to clean house. And I can't promise you who's going to get hurt in the process. Right? I mean, that's how we kind of perceive that. 
And what a contrast it creates for us. Superheroes, though, personify our deepest levels of brokenness. Because even with right actions, not even they are perfect. And they point to one grand conclusion. We don't need a superhero. We need a savior. We need a savior. You see, an elder will not perform perfectly in every area at all times. We have to manage this tension that a single incident doesn't necessarily disqualify a man. But an overall evaluation will demonstrate a faithful trajectory of following Jesus in the work that produces increasing Christ likeness. A man must be qualified by his character in order to ensure he is competent for the work. I'm going to finish with this fourth principle and it will be much shorter. We've looked at three so far that appointing elders is a first priority in order for the church. Qualification for eldership begins with personal godly character. That qualification measures a man's character in order to ensure competency for the work. But now this fourth character or this fourth guiding principle is that competency ensures a man's character enables him to commit to the work. You see that the the work of eldership so often demands more than a man can offer. And, and, and it's not one that he'll want to do. There are many times he'll be confronted by with something that just says, I don't think I want to do this. And at those times, the question remains, will he remain committed to the work? You see, only a man whose character has been qualified as competent will remain committed to the work. Now, let, let me give a, um, just a brief note here. Some men are not ready to be elders, not because their character proves incompetent. Okay? Understand that. There's not just eight men in this church whose character measures up to the qualifications here. That's not at all what Paul is saying to the local church. But because they simply cannot commit to the demand of the work. Qualifications aren't only about character, but they are led by character. Every man should be qualified, but not every man will be called to commit. And that's important here. Eldership means a man remains committed to two principal works. First, Paul says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. And secondly, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You see, the man who leads in the church must be led by holding to God's word above all else. For God's word, the Bible, holds Jesus' authority for leading the church. The elders do not hold personal authority to lead the church. What they hold to is Jesus, who is our authority to lead the church. And the whole church should be holding to Jesus as well. And so men hold to God's word to lead only when they are held by God's word in their own life. That's why he says sound doctrine is so critical for the church and they must be prepared to instruct in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For only a man who holds to the word of God faithfully stands ready to instruct and to guard sound doctrine in all circumstances. So when a man commits to the work of an elder, it first means he submits to the word of God that makes an elder. Two more statements and I'll close. A man will only hold to God's word when life pressures him. 
when that word is shaping his heart and his life in that pressure. If God's word is not shaping a man's heart and character, when the pressure of life gets applied, he will not hold to God's word, no matter what he said about it. He will not hold to it. Because it was not that word shaping him. But if it is Jesus shaping him through the word of God, he will cling to it as his only hope, no matter what pressure comes. For a man will only remain committed to serve that which most shapes his character. All right, I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Can I make two cautions for us as the church? And there are really two ends of the spectrum we're most inclined to run to. The first one is this. We should not make qualification for eldership so high, so holier than thou, that a man looks at it and says, I could never attain towards that. That's for somebody else. And so we frustrate him. And especially those who sense a call to eldership. Say, I couldn't do that, so I shouldn't do that. But neither should we as a congregation so reduce the qualifications when applying them individually to people to say, you know, there, there's some fractures there, but we'll let it slide. Let's just bring you on in. That's attention, friends. That's attention. Quite frankly, if these qualifications were perfectly held, there wouldn't be a man in the church, myself included, or any of our elders included, as nice as some of those guys are. That would measure up. But that's not the point that Paul is making. Paul didn't say go find perfect men and make them the elders of the church. And some of you men here today, when we call for elders and for those who might aspire towards eldership, here's your first thought. When I get a few more things together, I'll let you know I might be interested. That's the same thing you said before you became a Christian, isn't it? You know, God, when I get a little more of my life pulled together, I'll come talk to you about salvation. That's the antithesis of the gospel, friends. For the gospel says that God calls, and the person he calls to salvation, he remakes them through the gospel. And for each of us, these character qualities should not be disregarded as, well, I don't want to be an elder, can't be an elder, so they're not for me. They're for every one of us. And so for me to say, what is shaping your character is not to be applied to a few, but to the whole. What is shaping your character? What are you holding to? What is holding you so that when the pressure of life applies with increasing fervency, intensity, and depth, you will hold to Jesus. Maybe today for the first time in your life you would say, I've never repented of my sins, got honest with myself, turned from my sin, and trusted in Jesus for salvation. And if you need to do that today, I want to invite you to do that. Many of you are Christians here today. And you need to turn from your self-will and your self-capability of being a Christian and realize your good deeds are as filthy rags with God. And just trust in the gospel 
to repent and to confess of sin each and every day as it is revealed in your heart and life and turn to Jesus to let him remake you in those small areas, those dark corners of your own mind and of your own heart. And you say, well, they're not displaying themselves in actions. Yes, but if they're revealing themselves in attitudes or areas of the heart, it's because the Spirit is there wanting to shine light on them and redeem you at that place. Let me pray for you. And then let's respond to the Lord. God, help us today. For I know a teaching like this is very heavy. And so often we are inclined to dismiss it. Because it means hard work must be done. But God, by your grace and by your mercy today and by your kindness, may we run to you in repentance. And may we look to you and trust in you and in you alone for what you want to do in us. Each and every one. That Jesus would be the only potter that's forming our clay. That righteousness would be the only aim of what we desire because it's what God desires for our life. And may the gospel, not human will, ability, intellect, or accomplishment, may the gospel be the only means by which we pursue this life you've called us to. Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship Him this morning, church.